Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, cutting the cash for landmine removal. 15 people are killed or injured by these indiscriminate weapons every day and very often it's children, the most vulnerable and many of the poorest people in the world who, who bear the brunt of, of those risks. Fresh anger over Afghanistan. What was it all for? Why did we abandon the country to the very insurgency that we went into defeat in the first place. And half a century in space for the UK. Space is getting smaller. We're looking really into the miniaturisation of satellites and there's a lot of appetite and uh, desire for these small launchers that can be efficient, they can be easier to clean up, they provide less waste. Cuts to the UK's foreign aid budget will remain in place for at least another three years. The Chancellor's budget announcement means spending will remain below 0.7% of gross national income until at least 2024. One area already feeling the strain is landmine clearance. Its funding has already been reduced by nearly £100 million, described as catastrophic by the NGO, the Mines Advisory Group. Its CEO, Darren Cormack, told me about the scale of the problem. Well, essentially, over 60 million women, girls, boys and men globally remain at risk as a result of of landmines. Um, 15 people are killed or injured by these indiscriminate weapons every day. Um, and very often it's children, the most vulnerable, and many of the poorest people in the world who, who bear the brunt of, of those risks. Mine action is essentially a, a cross-cutting issue. It, it enables security, facilitates development, um, and it enables the growth of countries through releasing land for economic development and trade. So there are many ways in which people will be impacted, but too often it is those um, least able to look after themselves who, who bear the price and bear the burden of this. And do you know how many landmines there are and which countries are the worst affected? Well, unfortunately, we don't know specifically how many landmines. Um, Partly, you know, a lot of this is historic remnants of conflict, if you like, from from many years ago. Some of the most affected countries in the world, particularly, say, Southeast Asia, are dealing with a legacy from over 50 and 60 years ago from, from the Vietnam conflict there. It's also because we're seeing new use, the use of improvised landmines or, or IEDs in, in conflicts around the world. And, you know, that new use is presenting new risks and new threats to security, new threats to populations that are having to move. Can you describe a bit more about the way people's lives are impacted by landmines? It can impact people. I mean, context is, is, is a vital kind of consideration as ever. So, you know, mine action, or as we call it, you know, will contribute to all spectrums of a, of a country's development. In the immediate conflict environment as we've seen in places like Syria or Iraq in, in, in recent you know years. The risks of landmines and improvised landmines prevent people from returning safely from home. They prevent them, you know, houses are, are booby trapped. Pathways to schools are a risk of landmines. So in in those sort of vital first you know days, weeks and months after a, a conflict, you know, there are immediate security issues where children who are curious are at risk, children who go out playing are at risk people going to market, people trying to flee other, other, other risks. After that, we can move often into, you know, the, the sort of post-conflict environment where, you know, people are looking to put themselves back on their feet, to, to use land that would enable subsistence agriculture, to feed their families, to keep them from the poverty line. Um, and we release land that could be used for, for paddy fields, that, that can be used to grow maize. And what impact is the cut in funding having? 
Well, you use the words catastrophic in your introduction, and that really is how, how we're labeling it right now. Um, the UK government has been a world leader in in 2018, you know, a major policy announcement was made at Kensington Palace. The Secretary of State at the time stood with Prince Harry and many of us and, and essentially put, you know, the UK government as one of the world leaders in, in support for humanitarian mine action. At its high point, there was a funding of around 125 million going towards this issue, funding a number of countries around the world. The reports we've received and the indications that we have is that we're dealing with a, a circa 80%, 75% cut rather in funding. So from that 125 million mark to around 25 million um, for the next three years. Whose people have done so much as, as deminers around the world uh, will have their funding completely cut. And then we're likely to see drastic cuts in 2022 to, to Angola, where Princess Diana famously walked through that minefield, uh, an iconic image we're also aware of. Laos and, and Cambodia will also suffer next year as well. So it, it's happening in a large scale way uh, in lots of different countries around the world, sadly. Darren Cormack. Well, I've also been speaking to Mark Warburton, a technical field manager working with the Mines Advisory Group, or MAG. He did a tour of Iraq shortly after the first Gulf War and Afghanistan. He was with 3-3 Engineer Regiment EOD. Iraq as a whole is is sort of is classed as one of the most contaminated countries in the world, or from landmines, cluster munitions, and then ISIS uh, from sort of 2014 produced IEDs and improvised landmines on an industrial scale, and they have used defensive barriers both in the sort in the urban environment and also the rural environment. So there is millions of them. And you were, this is your second time in Iraq, I understand, because you were deployed there after the first Gulf War. How has the situation changed since then, do you think, in terms of what, what you're finding? Through the sort of clearance in when I was with the, with the British Army, with, when I was with the Royal Engineers, that when we did the clearance after the first Gulf War, it was, it was very conventional munitions uh, and it was a lot of battle area clearance, clearance of cluster munitions. But then... Now that we, I'm back in in Iraq with uh, with Mag, then we are we are clearing IEDs and improvised landmines that have been seeded by ISIS. Can you talk us through what your team actually does on a day to day basis? So we have we are giving a task order by the national authority, the Directorate of Mine Action for Iraq, and then we will do the clearance of it. So we will will first set out the site we will then conduct conduct the clearance and all the clearances we do within sort of the humanitarian mine action are to an international standard and that is set and then it, that is enforced should i say by the national authority and we will we will clear the clear the whole land and we have to clear all of it and we have to do it to them standards because we want the local population to be able to go back to their houses or they will be able to reuse the land for agriculture. So everything is sort of, it's systematic and it's deliberate, uh, a deliberate clearance. What kind of reception are you getting from the locals about the work you're doing? The people really accept us and, and, and they want us to do the work. We do get complaints that we are sort of slow, but again, we are doing this systematically we have to to clear the land properly so and it is a slow process but uh, the, the people do do realize and sort of not just clearance teams we have community liaison teams who will 
go and speak to the local population. They will speak to the local authorities to, to, to make everybody understand what we're doing. And how has your experience in the British military helped with your work? I served in, in Iraq after the first Gulf War and then I also did a tour in Afghanistan and I think that it gives us a good understanding and from the military background is is it's essential to be able to plan tasks, it's essential to be able to manage people. So it's not just the technical skills I learned from the British Army, I think also the planning and the the liaison, being able to sort of speak to the local communities through my interpreters. Uh, But, yeah, it's sort of being able to organise things as well. Yeah, It's all to do with, there's lots of different aspects that we... I've brought from the, from my time in the British Army to my work with MAG. Obviously, we're talking with you today because of the cut to the budget for uh, landmine clearance and IED clearance. How do you feel about that? Is it affecting your work at the moment? And what would you say to people who say, well, you know, in the long list of needs overseas for aid, this is not necessarily a priority anymore? That is rubbish because we are essential as they sort of first part of the development of the local community or even the country. And have you been affected by the cut? Not at the moment. We we haven't, but but it will it will affect us in the future. Uh, Iraq isn't just about the sort of ISIS, uh, what ISIS has left behind. It is about sort of the legacy minefields from the Iran-Iraq war. There is also a lot of, of cluster munitions. And as the UK take over as the sort of the leader on the the convention against cluster munitions then i think it's sort of not the best time to make these cuts mark warburton speaking to me earlier well professor of defense studies michael clark joins me uh, michael the whole issue of landmines looks unlikely to ever go away do you think clearance can be done effectively with financial cuts like this happening Uh, Well, it certainly gets more difficult, that's for sure. Um, And you're right. I mean, anti-personnel landmines are a fact of life across the world. But nobody's entirely sure how many there are that are still in the ground and still live. The general estimate is over 100 million, maybe 110, 120 million. And they range from mines that were planted by the British and the Germans in Libya in the Second World War, where the mine uh, maps have been long since lost, right through to uh, the Falklands. Uh, The Falklands was only declared mine free last year. That's after 38 years then. They were all Argentinian mines sown in 1982. So it ranges from that through to, um, as uh, uh, Darren Cormack was saying, I mean, places like Iraq and Lebanon, where they're being laid all the time. And you look at the the, the, the anti-personnel uh, mine treaty was in, uh, what, 1999, and that reduced the stockpiles of, of uh, landmines from over 160 million down to only 50 million. But look at the people who didn't sign that treaty, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, and whether they use them themselves, they certainly end up supplying them to people like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and anyone who is involved in conflict. So there's a constant supply of mines being laid, even as others are being lifted. So you can never spend enough on this. And it's it's like a fact of life. Unless you keep on spending and keep on neutralising mines that have been planted years and years ago, then um, whole areas of agricultural land in developing countries cannot be used. And unless they're cleared properly, 
they, they, you still can't use the land. If you said, well, we're 90%, we've cleared 90% off this land, meaning that there used to be 100 mines here, now there's only 10, people still won't use that land for very obvious reasons. And how useful do you think Prince Harry's support for the Halo Trust is in keeping the subject in the public eye? Well, it helps. Um, the problem for Prince Harry is that he's he's in the public eye now in Britain for rather the wrong reasons most of the time. And he's he's not in the mainstream now of, of British thinking on these things. But he certainly made a big effort and did help in, in 2018, I think, as um, uh, Sergeant Warburton was saying, Mark Warburton, uh, that Britain did take the lead uh, on this uh, with the Halo Trust. And we've sort of given that up now. Michael Clark, stay with us. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, has admitted that the political resolve of the NATO alliance failed when it came to Afghanistan. He made the comments in a Defence Committee inquiry into the withdrawal of troops from the country. One of the MPs leading the inquiry was the chair of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood. We gave up. We didn't have the resolve, the commitment to see it through. And it's understandable that after two decades... Uh, many uh, those who served there and bereaved families as well will be scratching their heads saying, what was it all for? Why did we abandon the country to the very insurgency that we went into defeat in the first place. Well, those comments come as new figures show the RAF has airlifted 102 people who fled Afghanistan to a neighbouring country to the UK. In August, Operation Pitting saw 15,000 Afghans and British nationals evacuated. At the time, the Defence Secretary said the UK's commitment to the Afghan people wouldn't end there. But is the subsequent evacuation of just over 100 people impressive? Or surprisingly low. Michael Clark is still here. What do you think, Michael? Um, well, it's probably realistic. It's not impressive, um, but it's the number of people that uh, were able to be processed and taken out very often by clandestine means. And my understanding is that a lot of people in Britain, uh, ex-soldiers or ex-military and quite a lot of other people who've been concerned with Afghanistan are still trying to make arrangements, fairly secret arrangements, which the government is, I think, helping with to bring people out when and where they can. But they're not talking about it openly. And that's fine, but we can't get away from the fact that we can only ever, you know, rescue something in the low hundreds. In the by the end of this year or early next year, we'll have rescued, I don't know, let's guess, two or three hundred more. But I mean, I was checking on some figures this week that forty-eight thousand people have tried to escape Afghanistan this year, mainly to uh, Iran and Pakistan and Tajikistan. So there's multiple thousands of people are escapees or trying to get away from the Taliban because their safety is threatened, and we are dealing in the the low hundreds at best. But presumably, it is a difficult and diplomatically sensitive thing to have to do. It is. And one of the problems we've got is consular issues. I mean, if people just turn up on the border and say, I, I need to escape, there's, an, there's a, an immediate question, well, who are you and what's your basis for this and what papers have you got? And of course, that's all incredibly difficult. But it's not helped by the fact, and this is becoming very clear now in parliamentary uh, inquiries, that there's been a real breakdown internally between the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign Office and the Home Office. They did not work very well together. And the Ministry of Defence, we know, got very frustrated 
operated at the height of the evacuation operation with the Home Office, trying to, as it were, preserve the principles of of uh, strict uh, requirements on anyone anyone being given permission. Uh, whereas the MOD was saying, look, let's get all these people out at least to the Gulf. Let's get them to uh, to Abu Dhabi or to Dubai, and then we'll sort out their paperwork. And if necessary, we'll do something else for them, even if we can't bring them to Britain. But no, the Home Home Office was making it really quite difficult, according to the MOD privately, to actually get this done. And I think that's still probably the case. But how can that be resolved? Because it does seem pretty inexcusable that you have splits in government departments when you've got people suffering in this way. Absolutely. It was a lack of planning. And, you know, of the things that were likely to happen in Afghanistan, granted that the complete collapse was not the most likely outcome, and we all thought it wouldn't be the most likely outcome. Nevertheless, it was a possibility. It was it was a reasonable possibility that collapse might be immediate. And yet no internal planning was done for it. And ministers and permanent undersecretaries all went on holiday just when the ambassador in Afghanistan, Laurie Bristow, was saying there may be an immediate collapse and they still all went on holiday. It's absolutely inexcusable. And I think we will see, um, you know, I know some of the material that's been going into these committees, the Foreign Affairs Committee is doing a report, the Defence Committee, the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy. I think we will see in the next few weeks and months, some very, very critical reports coming out of Parliament on the way Whitehall worked on this and the lack of the ability of the National Security Council to deal with it, because this was supposed to be the sort of thing that the NSC is for. Those people who are trying to get out of Afghanistan or are in neighbouring countries, for them, this is a crisis. What can be done to speed the process up? The best thing we could do is is engage much more constructively with the neighbouring countries. I mean, Pakistan, we have a good relationship with in general, and we need to develop that. Um, Iran, more difficult, but the Iranians want to deal with their refugee problem. Tajikistan, we we have a reasonable relationship with, but essentially they uh, will get more working through Russia, actually, with Tajikistan than probably directly. So the best thing we can do is to be diplomatically uh, proactive, quietly to deal with those countries to try to help them resolve their problems because as i say none of them want you know this 48000 uh, number of escapees that they need to deal with and try to resettle those people somewhere else in the world but but the idea that which we've got from the home office so far that we will take 20000 people over the next 5 years is neither here nor there um, because you know will they still be alive in in 5 years time these people are being hunted generally speaking by the taliban so we've got to take a different view on the number of people we are prepared to resettle and other Western countries as well. But again, I can promise p- people out there who are who are sceptical about you know an- another influx of, of uh, foreign Asian peoples, Afghans will get on very well indeed. They're very inventive. They know what they're doing. And those people who are escapees, they're escapees because by and large they speak English, they did professional jobs, they are teachers, civil servants and so on. If they're brought into British society, the vast majority will get on very well and contribute quite a lot. Uh, This week, during Prime Minister's questions, the government was accused of washing its hands of the legacy it left behind in Afghanistan. Is that fair? The the collapse of of policy, Western policy, was such that uh, it always leaves behind lots of loose ends, and those loose ends are very personal things. 
the, the one thing you can say in some mitigation for Britain's position is that once the Americans had decided, Britain and all of the other NATO countries had almost no other alternatives. Um, there was no room for diplomatic manoeuvre. And Ben Wallace made that clear. He said, you know, we explored the possibility of a, a lasting European mission in Afghanistan when the Americans left. There was no no takers for it whatsoever. We might have led it if there had been some willingness, but there wasn't. And so the only, you know, the only mitigating factor, and it's lamentable that this should be the case, is that once the Americans decide, had decided and once the Biden administration was not going to listen to anyone else, they were just going to do what they were going to do, regardless of what anyone else thought, there was no, literally no room for diplomatic manoeuvre. Now, the UK is determined to be a major player in space, investing in new hardware and building its own spaceport. But it's not the first time this has happened. Britain's first space launch was 50 years ago this week. The rocket Black Arrow blasted off, launching a satellite into orbit, and it's still up there. But the space programme was cancelled because it was too expensive. I've been speaking to Josh Barker from the National Space Centre and first Evan Slattery from the space innovation company Skyrocket. Black Arrow was uh, was the original um, UK launch program that started in the 1960s, and um, Black Arrow was basically came off of um, the original the ballistic missile program, which was looking to launch nuclear uh, warheads and, and and so on and so forth. So these programs were called Black Knight and Blue Streak. So when when that that program was cancelled, the uh, Black Arrow program was born as they saw that a lot of these technologies were transferable from this missile program into launch vehicles to go to space. So those were the origins of the program. And um, they so there was original launches starting in 1969. And then there was four launches in total all the way to 1971, which brought uh, Britain's first uh, satellite into space called Prospero, which orbits today. And Evan, we were the sixth nation to successfully launch a satellite, but the programme was cancelled before blastoff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, this ran into, um, it was a tricky time in the UK. Um, this was back in the Wilson era. And uh, the, the money that was going into the programme, they didn't see the value in that, especially at such a difficult time. And it really is because today, maybe uh, maybe things would look a lot better if we had still had this programme in place. Yeah, what do you think might have happened? Um, well, I think definitely, obviously, from Skyrora's perspective, we're trying to build on uh, this original launch uh, provider from UK soil. So I think the technology we would be a regular uh, operator. People would come to Britain to launch satellites. And I think we'd be rivaling other space nations in, uh, in our capability to launch. Uh, Josh Barker, presumably it's still pretty expensive to be getting into space now. Yeah, so the cost of spaceflight is still quite high. Um, obviously, it's coming down as we get better and better um, understanding of rocket technology. But, you know, it does require a substantial investment. I think that's one of the main decisions, unfortunately, behind the cancellation of this project. It was uh, whether or not we were going to get that return. You know, hindsight, they say, is 2020, because nowadays we look back and the current UK space industry is um, absolutely booming. It continues to grow. It represents an amazing investment and uh, return on that investment. So uh, it's nice to think what could have been. Yeah, I suppose you think Black 
Monaco as a real missed opportunity as well, do you? Um, it definitely seems that way now, but you never know how things change. You know, perhaps if uh, we'd have continued down that course, maybe it would have changed where we ended up nowadays. You know, we like to think that we would have continued to grow and, and go on. And it certainly seems that we've done that well. But we've, you know, we've come out the other end looking really good already. Yes. Uh, Evan, you helped get the remains of Black Arrow back to the UK, didn't you? So, yes, yeah, Sky Aurora, uh, back in 2018, um, went on a mission to get back the remains of uh, R3 and R4 the first stage of the launch vehicle, which um, would have crash landed back into the deserts of uh, Australia. So um, they went over, started looking in 2018. And then it was early this year, they, we got the remains back. We held an event in July, the remains on uh, on show, and people were able to look and, and revel at the uh, the intricacies of such a design. And it was still in very good tech, just with a little bit of dust. <laughs> Josh, 50 years on, how big a player can Britain be in the years ahead, do you think? Um, I think we're going to be quite a big player. You know, we already are. Our, our space industry is, you know, world class. You know, we build amazing satellites that are used all around the world by all sorts of organisations. We've got a fantastic research arm as well. Uh, a lot of the organisations, universities around here, people like Skyrora, they're really starting to do some amazing development and continue to grow what is already an incredible industry. And I think there doesn't seem to be any signs of that stopping or slowing down. And it will continue to be a dominant force, especially with the construction of the spaceports that we're starting to see coming online. Yeah, so what can we expect from them? Um, so those are mainly designed at slightly smaller scale launches than uh, perhaps the large rockets we see taking off uh, from NASA and Russia and things like that. But that's kind of a benefit because space is getting smaller. We're looking really into the miniaturization of satellites and there's a lot of appetite and uh, desire for these small launches that can be efficient, they can be easier to clean up, they provide less waste. Um, and so I think that's going to be a real growing market. And we've already got three spaceports around the country that are looking to be built. Um, and I think we really have a great opportunity to to capitalise on, on this new era of spaceflight. Evan, you're hoping to launch your first rocket next year, I hear. Yeah, so recently we uh, signed a launch agreement with um, uh, Spaceport Saxovord in Shetland. And uh, basically this will look for, it's a decade long, and we're hoping to launch at the end of 2022, our Skyrora XL rocket. Um, so we haven't decided on satellites yet, but um, we're hoping there'll be some interesting um, uh, opportunities there. And then from there, we plan to launch up to 16 launches per year from 2030. So we're really looking forward to that. Busy times ahead. Evan Slattery, Josh Barker, thank you very much for your time. Well, Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, is the UK being realistic, thinking it can be a key player going forward in space? Black Arrow seems a very long time ago now. Uh, yes, it does. But we're, uh, the government's very determined to get back into it. There is a spaceport being created now. It's already launching. It's on Unst in, in the Shetlands. It's the northern island of the Shetlands. It's the northest point of the northernmost island, the most northerly point you can get to in the British Isles, uh, at a place called Saxavord. And there's an RAF radar station that was reopened there in 2019. And the space launch facility there is up and running, and we can launch uh, small satellites from there. The question is really whether uh, we need a launch facility in Britain. Space is very important to us and satellites are very important, but there's plenty of ways of launching. Whether we need a sovereign launch capability, you know, as in the, the old um, Black Arrow days, is a different sort of question. Uh, and briefly, should space programmes be a priority now? Well, space is a big priority because there's so much vulnerability there. We have so many satellites, we need them so much. So uh, we need to think much more about the safety of our space assets and the sort of assets we want to put in space. So protecting them is very important. That's not the same as having your own launch facility, but undoubtedly space is a big, big military priority for the future. 
Now, a quick siggy behind the tank sheds will soon be a thing of the past as the army is planning to go tobacco-free at all sites in the UK by the end of 2022. Smoking is one of the leading causes of premature death, with 200 people dying each day in England. However, the culture is changing, and today's soldiers are more conscious about the effect smoking has on their health. Amy Wiltshire reports. It's been part of army culture since the height of its popularity in the 1950s, but now it's being stubbed out with the aim to make the British Army smoke-free by the end of 2022. Brigadier Mike Butterwick is the Brigadier General Staff of the Army Headquarters in Andover. They will be the first to kick-start the initiative next week. 24% of the Army smokes, that's higher than the national average. We've got to do something about that because as a professional army, which is all about healthy performance, smoking really isn't, uh, isn't conversant with that particular uh, way of living a life. So it's, it's time to, to make a change. Now is the right time to do it. Being smoke-free will include all defence sites with the exception of single living accommodation. There'll be a smoking area close to where they live and family accommodation is governed by the rules of the tenancy agreement. Let's be very clear. What we're saying is you can't smoke in the workplace. Now, uh, law is very clear on this. You know, there's a right to a private life. uh, And therefore, if you're a single soldier, you're living on the barracks. uh, Of course, you are able to smoke uh, in and around your accommodation. That's the same with our service families. So nobody's telling them to stop. What we are saying is we're not going to smoke in our workplaces. And I think the, the difference is, I think, very clear on that. Smoking is one of the leading causes of premature death, with 200 people dying each day in England. However, the culture is changing, and today's soldiers are more conscious about the effects smoking has on their health. But where do people go if they don't want to quit? And what is going to be in place to help them on their journey if they do decide to stop? We've got to be sympathetic to those who, you know, really have been hardened smokers and are now having to change a change a lifestyle. You know, this is going to take a bit of time to to understand and to help and move people in the right direction. I I completely get that. And I think the message would be is if you really do have concerns, have a talk to your chain of command, have a talk to your health professionals and let's all try and get to this place. But ultimately what we're saying is the workplace is a smoke free environment. With the overall aim to reduce the number of smokers in the UK, vaping will be allowed, but only in designated areas, as the Army move in line with the RAF and Navy, making all bases smoke-free in the near future. Amy Wiltshire reporting. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, Thank you for listening. Goodbye.